1: Still here vibing out in the DriveHuler.com studio alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. I'm James Boyd. Listening to the midday show here on The Fan. We've had a lot of discussions about the NFL, the Colts, running back contracts. We're going to pivot to the NBA and the Pacers, who could be one of those up and coming teams next season that's sticking to the play in or the playoffs, as I like to say. We have Mike Vorkanov, who covers the NBA for the athletic I guess he's my co-worker technically even though I haven't met him but I appreciate him taking the time Mike how you doing
0: hey we're, we're kind of like a vast universe of writers kind of like the MCU we all kind of exist somewhere even <laughs> if our storyline
2: <laughs> it.
1: there you go. it is always funny because I'm like I'll read something on the athletic and I'm like wait a second yeah that's my co-worker but Mike you had a great piece I thought on the Pacers this offseason got a lot of great comments from our, our supporters, our subscribers who were saying Pacers content, we have it now, but what did you think of their offseason, And in particular, the way they went about getting Bruce Brown.
0: I, you know, I, I really liked it. That was kind of like the drive for me uh, in writing that story because I was, I was intrigued by, you know, I was intrigued by the, the Pacers last season. Um, obviously Tyree Caliburton is just a very likable guy and he plays a very fun way And that always kind of sucks you in, right? But they were also surprised early on in the season before he got hurt. Uh, They they were above 500 in January, and I I think maybe their season might have turned out differently uh, if he could have played and stayed healthy for the whole year. Um, And so I was interested in what they would do this offseason, and I thought they took a, a great approach. You know, they added a connector, a guy like, Bruce Brown, they paid a premium for it, right? Two years, $45 million. But in talking to GM Chad Buchanan, they definitely recognized that was the way that they'd have to acquire someone like him who had probably like a handful of teams ready to offer him the mid-level or maybe just about above the mid-level. And so they had to blow the market out. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what a team like the Pacers have to do. And so I thought it was a great start to free agency for them amongst all the other moves they had.
2: Mike, when you look at a player like... Obi Toppin, another name that the Pacers were able to acquire for relatively low cost this offseason. Why, in your mind, didn't things work out the way that he would have liked to, being one of the top picks in the 2020 draft in New York? And why should there be reason for optimism for Pacers fans that even if he won't be what he was drafted to be, he could be a valuable piece to a young core? So.
0: You know, one of the things that was interesting to me about the Pacers was that they did two things, right? They tried to fix their defense with Bruce Brown. Uh, They had a bottom five defense in the league last year. And that makes sense. You want to fix the big problems that you have. Uh, And I thought they leaned into their strengths, which was playing fast and playing in a style that accents uh, Tyrese Halliburton's strengths. Uh, You know, they they had, I think, the fourth fastest team in the NBA last year and, Obi Toppin is a guy who likes to get up and down the floor. So one of the reasons why I think he struggled in New York, aside from being drafted onto a team with Julius Randle, and so he really only got 12 minutes or so, 15 minutes or so a game, um, during his career with Randle flourishing into an all-NBA-level player and uh, Tom Thibodeau struggling with uh, putting him on the court because of his defense, he's at his best in transition. And the Knicks under Thibodeau do not like to play fast. They're one of the slowest teams in the league. And that did not suit Toppin's style. And, you know, he's a talented guy. He likes to get up and down the court. He can hit threes. He's more of like a kind of a tweener type, not a true four. You know, he can play on the perimeter. He's not going to defend well enough to be a five or a front court rim protected type of guy. But I think in Indiana, he can play uh, with Albert and give him a running mate, play with the rest of that offense, have Miles Turner behind him on defense to make up for some of his issues. And I think that he'll fit in well um, in Indiana once he gets there because it's a team that will play like how he likes to play.
1: Now, obviously, they had to give up two second-round picks for Obi Toppin. I read your story, and I thought it was hilarious when you were talking to Chad Buchanan about – the unique way they went about getting Bruce Brown, at least that's how Chad described it. I'm thinking to myself, the unique way was, hey, here's a bag of money, come play (laughs) for us. And so, and I get it as a GM, you have to say things in a professional manner, in a formal manner, but I was thinking to myself, that was your biggest selling point, along with obviously playing alongside Tyrese Halliburton. And the question that I've kind of had for a few guests that we've had on the show is, in all these talks about the Pacers, even with their draft picks, you know, Jairus Walker being... A potential starter for this team and someone who could help you know defensively how do you think miles turner fits into all of this because he's a guy who for so long was looked at as trade bait and has been in trade rumors ever since he's been here it seems like in, in in indiana but now it seems like he could really be a focal point to help this team return to the playoffs and i believe he might be the only guy on the team who's been to the playoffs in a pacers uniform
0: yeah, I do want to say, though, uh, I agree with you. Usually, like, throwing the bag at someone is the most obvious way to acquire a player in free agency. Uh, just so saying. I <laughs> but I, I guess it's unique because, you know, front offices now especially are just so tied up in, like, making sure they have maximum efficiency uh, in all their acquisitions, right? You're not paying too much in terms of, like, wins per dollar or any of that sort of stuff. So it's unique in that way that they maybe like, I, I thought it was state he kind of said, like, yeah, we kind of overpaid. Uh, yeah. But that's what you
1: got to do. But also the team option helps as well. So there's a little yeah. bit of like recourse there. So yeah.
0: Yeah, and it helps them keep him uh, if they want to long term because they can, you know, maybe decline the team option or they can give an extension on top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just all that C B A mechanics stuff. Uh, that we don't need to get into. But with Miles Turner, I I think he's vital to this team, right? And we just talked about all their defensive problems. He's the guy who anchors that defense. He's their best defender. He's a rim protector. They need that more than ever. And so they're going to need him uh, to be the backbone of that defense the entire season. And maybe Jairus Walker will turn into a guy that you can rely on as a really good defender uh, in the front court. maybe some multi-positional defending, and who knows about his rim protection. He showed signs of that during Summer League. But again, you know, it's Summer League. You take that for what it's worth, right? Uh, but I, they're going to need Turner to stay healthy, and it's ironic that now he's in such a vital place for the franchise after they basically spent like the last four <laughs> years or so with him on the trade market.
1: Yeah, I remember when I asked him a couple years ago when I covered the Pacers for Indy Star. I was like, hey, how does it feel to be in the trade rumors? And he's like, I could tell you're new here because this happens every year. I feel the same as I always do. And I was like, oh, welcome to the NBA, James. But <laughs> when you talk about Jarrus Walker, you mentioned a little bit there, his defensive prowess, some of the flashes he showed. But what was it like to see it in person in Vegas and also just maybe some of the versatility offensively when it came to being sort of like that hub that could make some things happen, whether it's a dribble handoff, you know, maybe a little bit of outside shooting, put it on the floor, passing, things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the defense came as advertised, right? That was kind of his calling card going into the draft and uh, why he became a lottery pick, and he's got that physicality to him. Uh, Obviously playing at Houston, which values defense and being Mm -hmm. physical for a college program, you got to have that. Um, But I was surprised by his offense, as you said. I I thought he turned out to be kind of a deaf passer, and I didn't know if I was expecting that so much from him. Um, But he looked comfortable in the short roll. He he looked comfortable kind of making passes and playmaking, uh, First teammates who got up and down the court a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think that'll help him get on the court initially. You know, usually they say it's the defense, but I, I think in Indiana, if they're trying to play fast and they're trying to make sure that they have to score enough points, right, if you're not going to defend well, you you got to do the other part really well. Um, I, I think they may help him get him on the court. And I'm curious to see what the minutes breakdown is going to be between him and Toppin uh, next season as they almost come at it from two different perspectives uh, in terms of their skill sets.
2: Mike Vorkanoff with us covers the NBA for the Athletic here on the Fan Midday Show taking some time with us Mike when you look at how complex rebuilds can be especially for smaller market teams and you look at a guy like Benedict Matherin who's ready for his sophomore season and had mixed results at Summer League which again we will take with a grain of salt to some extent but definitely would expect a little bit more prowess from your second year guys versus rookies that are just getting their feet to the fire with other rookies but with how complex these rebuilds can be, how imperative is it for Benedict Matherin to be a pick that not only is usable, but that pans out for the Pacers. And what do you need to see from him from the national level, along with Tyrese Halliburton as a, as a co-pilot to him for this Pacers offense?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, he's kind of their best uh, lottery ticket, so to speak, right? Like, they have Hal Burton and he's turned into a really good player and all-star, but they need Matherin to hit and take a big leap forward too. Cause you're going to need uh, multiple all-stars if you want to be a, you know, a conference final level team or a consistent playoff team uh, eventually down the line. And so uh, maybe Walker gets there, but Matherin, you know, I thought he showed some flashes in his rookie year as a, you know, a very good score, if not the efficiency uh, part, there as a rookie, but that's also kind of to be expected. Um, and sure, you know the struggles at summer league, or at least the lack of domination, like you saw from like Jabari Smith, maybe is a sign of concern. But we'll see what happens when he actually gets into an NBA game. But I think they need him. You know, he's vital to their long-term term build, right? Like you need multiple ball handlers, you need multiple playmakers in the backcourt who can really create and break down defenses, uh, and he's their next best course for that behind Halbert and especially with uh, Buddy Heald I think he has one year left on his contract and so um, you know Andrew Nemhard obviously played well as a rookie but I I think their ceilings are two different cases so you know I'm curious to see where Matherin comes in next year and what he can provide for the Pacers long term as well
1: Mike one of the things that you hit on just there a little bit and even in this piece was Andrew Nemhard. how impressive has he been considering where he was drafted I know they really invested a lot of money in him last year. I believe he got the second, I'm going to say the largest contract ever for a second round pick or something like that, at least the guaranteed money. But what do you think of his rookie season and just what he showed in summer league, because of all the players there for the Pacers, he may have been the most impressive, at least from my perspective.
0: Yeah. And I mean, look, he was so good as a rookie, right? Especially as a second round pick, he just outplayed all expectations. Um, and maybe it wasn't so surprising, just because he was an older rookie and he had been in college for a while. But nonetheless, the the value there uh, for when he went in the draft and how he played, uh, the Pacers obviously did well to draft him and, and to bring him into their organization. And so it would make sense that he would play well in a second summer league, as you know. And I think he fills a vital role in that he can be that you know kind of backup point guard, third guard type of guy. Uh, on the roster, maybe step into a starting role down the line, uh, if need be, and just really be on a cheap contract too. Um, even if it's a big one for a second-round pick, over in, overall in the you know big scheme of things, it's not that expensive, uh, and he can provide a lot of value for the contract that he's on. And, uh, you know, the Pacers are building a really nice backcourt there, especially with him and Matherin um, and Halbert, who's pretty young too. And so uh, I'm going to be curious to see what it all looks like going forward. I, I think they have the versatility with the healed contract and Miles Turner only having two years left on his deal to also, uh, if they want to, you know, potentially make a, a bigger trade down the line.
1: Look at look at Miles Turner and trade in the same sentence already, <laughs> <laughs> but no. Well,
0: uh, <laughs> we didn't about him as being an important
1: part of the team. I mean, it's fair. It's very fair, and the, and the way that deal was structured, I'm sure the the Pacers loved it because it does give them that flexibility when Halliburton and hopefully Matherin are entering their prime. But one thing I want to ask you about this upcoming season is. Are they a playoff team? I know you talked about that with Chad Buchanan. He seems to be like, hey, this is what we're shooting for. We want to be in the thick of things when the regular season ends. So I've been debating it back and forth. Are they a top six team next season in the East?
0: I don't know if I'd go that far. I think they're probably a up- more likely, I'd project them as like a, a play in uh, mm-hmm. team, somewhere in that seven to 10 range. You know, the top of the East is still pretty good with, you know, Boston and Milwaukee and Miami. And I think I'll still put Philly up there, even if they get their hardened stuff figured out or, or if they don't. And, um, you know, Cleveland's pretty good. And, and, you know, we'll see kind of what happens in the rest of the conference. Um, I think Orlando could take a leap. I really like what they did, and and we'll see what happens to Brooklyn with a full season of their current roster. But I would project them more so in that 7-10 to range. Uh, But you never know, right? You never know what happens, and maybe everyone has a breakout season all at the same time, and they jump into that uh, 5 or 6 seed and it helps to have a really good coach with Rick Carlisle.
2: Mike, I want us to go big picture NBA nationally in just a second. But first, since we have you, I know you've had a piece talking about the way salaries need to be viewed in the NBA, and they should be viewed with the cap continuing to go up as a percentage of the cap instead of dollar amounts. Yes. And, and while I, I know James is eager to dive into that too, I'll let him have that question because my angle for it is how it impacts us locally in a different sport. I know it's outside of your lane a bit, but Indianapolis Colts running back Jonathan Taylor is still on one year of his contract and then could be franchise tag, just like Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs were for the giants and Raiders respectively. When you look at the NBA, what if anything is the closest thing to a franchise tag like weapon that, that teams have when it comes to player negotiations or, or is there one?
0: I mean, there's nothing that quite has the same kind of ability to stop a player from hitting the market. You know, it, probably be something like uh the supermax contract because that can only go to someone who's um you know been with his team his whole life uh, sorry his whole career um uh, unless they got traded during their rookie deal so i, I mean you kind of see it with pascal siakam now probably wants why he wants to stay in toronto is that the raptors are the only team that can give him that 35 uh supermax contract as opposed to anywhere else, if you can get trading, you get that 30%. Uh, and then and you, you ask get, out. <laughs> that, that, that is wow. the play. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. not wrong. <laughs> you get your money, then you spend a year or two there, and then you go where you actually want to go. Exactly. But yeah, that's, that's a discussion of another story. <laughs> but that, that would probably be the closest thing that I can think of to kind of the equivalent of the franchise tag. But I mean, the franchise tag is just so much more um, inhibitive for a player than it is, than there is anything in the NBA.
1: Yeah, and as Jimmy alluded to, how important do you think it is, even just for the casual fan, because I have a hard time with this myself, like they pay them what kind of money? To look at it, like you said in your piece, from a percentage of the cap space rather than the dollar amount because I believe when we're old and gray – the contracts are going to be really crazy. They're like, they're paying $100 million for, you know, their eighth. Timothy Moskov? Yeah, if like sorry. they're, okay, well, that was always, you know, a bad idea. But, you know, for their sixth guy on their team, they're paying them $100 million. So how have you seen maybe that narrative or at least how are you trying to help ch- shift that narrative and at least maybe be more educational in that sense?
0: Yeah, and I mean it's you know it's nothing new. Like team execs and player agents have been doing it for a while as kind of the level setting in their contract negotiations, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they do that in the NFL as well. Yeah, I don't know much about the process there, um, but to me, like it's going to be most instructive first with the guys who are earning the max deals. You know, I think there's a chance if if the cap rises the maximum amount, or you know, uh, or even maybe if it doesn't. Um, you know, by the end of the decade, like we'll see the salary cap triple from what it was in like 2013, right? Mm-hmm. So, you're talking about tripling in about 15 years. Um, you know, I, I think we'll see salaries approaching uh 80 million dollars, 80 million dollars by the end of the decade annually for these supermax guys. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to like 100 million dollar per year player, um, maybe around like a, a decade from now, and so. You see that, and you're thinking, oh wow, this guy's making eighty million dollars. That's so much money, but it's it's actually right in line with what you know, say Kobe was making uh, thirty million dollars ten years ago, right? Like it's the same percentage of the cap essentially. Um, And then you know it's making sense of the guys who make twenty million dollars now, and it's just basically NBA inflation. And that's how you have to understand that is that. Uh, You know, they have 51% of the basketball-related income goes to the players every year. And so, you got to spend that money somehow. And so, we see these salaries rise up, and that means the NBA is doing so much better, right? It's a reflection of the league itself doing well financially, uh, and the owners prospering from it, and this is... Ah, uh, the players prospering from it as well, as well. It's just that their success and their financial benefits are front-facing, whereas we don't know what happens to the owners and how much money they make on the back end because that's you know that's less transparent.
1: Well, I'll tell you what I. I'm a big fan of NBA inflation. If I'm a player, and it's much, it sounds very much more enticing than this regular inflation I'm dealing with in my day-to-day life. When it comes to like apartments and things like that, and you know, buying a house, you know, you don't have to worry about that if you're making that kind of money in the NBA. So kudos to those guys who worked on my jumper. But when you talk about supermax contracts, one guy who has one of those is Damian Lillard, and he had the option to turn down that option that deal to have control of his future full control but now he's asking out a year after signing an extension and do you think this is something that is a good or bad look for the league or is it just what it is at this point and being sort of a player league and I ask that because I cover a league now where players don't have that kind of power and do you foresee that as being a problem, particularly for small market teams, that they want to keep a guy in their city, but, you know, you sign up to all this money, and then a year later, he's like, I only want to go here for asking out. It's not even just you're asking out, it's saying, I only want to go to this one team.
0: Well, I mean, Portland doesn't have to trade into Miami, right? Like, that's the thing, in the end of it. I think that, I don't know if it's gone too far or not, in terms of how often these players, how players have asked out. You know, I, I think it's a fair reciprocation of when, teams trade players. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. Like It's the same way. You know, I was talking to like an agent, I remember last summer and he's like, look, we're just trying to get the financial uh, structure settled in for the contract. And then we'll figure out the rest later. Right. The same way a team wants to sign a player. And if they eventually down the line, want to trade them, that's what their decision is. You know, that's the whole point of a contract is both of you, uh, both sides get to have the money that you've locked into that contract. Um, I, you know, I think the difference is just like, superstars especially in the nba just have so much more power than anyone else in the nfl right save for yeah. a few probably select quarterbacks and so they can determine their futures um in a much more uh, open way than than probably a lot of other players can and you know i i've been surprised the last few years how often teams have acceded to those players when they ask out and i think it's probably more jarring now when you see uh, a team like Portland that necessarily doesn't get a deal done right away to the team that uh, Damian Lillard wants, or like you know Philadelphia, which hasn't traded James Harden and Daryl Morey has gone out there saying like we're going to wait uh, for the right deal for us because we've seen teams be so player friendly uh, when there has been that conflict in the years past, and it's becoming more notable now um, when they haven't. And I don't know how players in the NFL can match that without some kind of bargaining involved. Um, in their next CBA or, or just being able to withhold their labor in a way that uh, really makes it punitive for teams when uh, when when they don't want to give them the contract that they want or something like that.
2: Mike Vorganoff covers the NBA nationally for The Athletic. Mike, you mentioned the ongoing debate, and it's been around a number of different media outlets, of how much leverage either side has in these negotiations and whether or not Portland really has potential other offers or other pathways to trade Damian Lillard than just sending him to Miami. There's been debates about Tyler Hero's value or if they were to do something to acquire Tyrese Maxey in a trade instead. As you look around the league and you see different reports coming out about where the leverage really is, from the conversations you've had, is there a clamoring to get Damian Lillard within potential suitors in the NBA right now? Or is it really just... Miami knows what they want to offer, and they know that Damian Lillard wants to come here, so eventually Portland might have to bend the knee in this situation.
0: I actually think one of the most interesting parts about this Damian Lillard, um, this whole thing, is that this is the first superstar trade request that we've seen under the new CBA, right? And I'm curious how that changes or if it resets kind of the expected value um, that teams send over. You know when they do trade for a star like of Lillard's caliber, right? A top ten guy in the league. We saw that really get to maybe an unsustainable level uh, the last few years in the league with the Durant trade and the Rudy Gobert trade and just how many picks you had to throw in and good young players. But now having a guy like Lillard who who will make you know I think sixty three million dollars in the last year of his contract. Yes. um, And how painful that is for uh, if you if you you know if that takes you over the second apron, um, and what that does to teams. And so that to me is like very interesting to see how teams deal with all that and how it affects their mindset. And so, you know, I think Miami can make a pretty good deal. Um, you know, they can make a, a, I think three picks, maybe get up to four picks depending on hero and, um, you know, what they do with their protected pick to the thunder and they can throw in some young players. And and that's not nothing. I, I think maybe it's been misconstrued as like Miami can offer just a very, very bad trade offer to Portland. I don't think that's true. Um, and it's also a case of, like, what other teams that Damian Lillard might want to go to or what at least makes sense for Damian Lillard can offer a lot for him, right? Like, what is the marketplace as they weigh all these things? And I, I really don't know. I, I don't know what that looks like. I, I think um, it's going to be interesting to me just how the new CBA combined with uh, the competitive situation that the league is in right now kind of all mixes to create whatever the outcome is uh, for the Lillard situation, you know, Whenever, whenever this ends, whether it takes a few months, as Joe uh, Joe Cronin said uh, last week in Vegas.
1: Yeah, I just feel for my fellow beat writers out there because I'm like, this is something I do not envy having to cover at all. But one thing I do want to ask, and it is more just on-court production value and just your thoughts on how the basketball fit will be, the two teams who were in the finals prior to this past season were the Warriors and the Celtics. What do you think of the additions and subtractions they made this offseason? You know, in Boston, they added Porzingis. They, you know, got rid of Marcus Smart. In Golden State, you know, they shipped out Jordan Poole. They brought in Chris Paul. Do you think these moves could help them get back to the finals and have a shot to win it all?
0: I'm most interested by what Boston did uh, because I think it really kind of changes the nature of their team, right? We saw it in the first season under Joe Missoula, where they went away from a defense first type of style to really trying to play uh, to maximize their offense more so. And maybe you saw in the way how often like Grant Williams didn't play in the playoffs. And now that the trading is smart away from, you know, an offense first player, like Chris Topps, it's really interesting to me that they're leaning into um, trying to be a better offensive team in a kind of way from their defensive backbone that got them to the finals the last was a year ago now. And so uh, I think probably they got better, although I'm not entirely sure. It's clear that they needed more scoring and they needed another offensive outlet the last few years beyond um, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. We'll see if Christoph Sporzangis is the right guy to be uh, the answer to that. I, I don't know. I think he's got an interesting game and, and he's a little more mid-range heavy and he's obviously likes to work out of the post sometimes. So we'll see how that all mixes together. Um as for Golden State, you know, I I think they could be a better team next year because I, I think Chris Paul might still just be a better player uh, than Jordan Poole. Obviously like the injuries are a huge, huge question, so his availability is a big question. Uh, you can't be a better player if you're not on the court. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think they could be a little bit better, and it helps them out long-term in terms of their payroll and just, again, the new CBA and avoiding that because they can get out of that contract next summer if they want to. Uh, they'll have to figure out uh, if he starts or if he comes off the bench, but um I, I think he's he's probably a better player than Jordan Poole is at this point and, and you know he'll help him defensively and, and we'll see what the what the encore combination with Steph will be like.
1: All right. Well Mike, really appreciate your time. I'll say it because you can't I need the Boston Celtics to just play smarter because they hurt my head last year watching them and I was like, there's no way you have this much talent and you're playing this dumb. So they have to play smarter next year. And if they do that, then I think they obviously have a chance to get back then. They probably have a better chance than the Warriors. But I also don't want to count on Steph Curry because, as I tell these guys all the time, they're never dead until I see Steph Curry's body on the ground after a series. Like, that's how much I believe in that guy over there. But again, Mike, thanks for your time, man. And if you want to continue to get love in Indy, make sure you keep writing about the Pacers. <laughs> Listen, I'd
0: love to make it out to Indy next year, right? About him again, and, and catch a few games uh, in Indianapolis. It's a really nice arena, too. It's one of my favorites.
1: All right, let me know when you're around. But until then, take care.
2: All right, thanks for having me, guys.
1: Thanks, Mike. Again, that's Mike Vorkunov, covers the NBA for the Athletic. Still here in the DriveHuler.com studio. I'm James Boyd, alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. You're listening to 107.5 The Fan, the Midday Show. A lot of our conversation early on throughout today has been about Saquon Barkley, his contract negotiations, but there is another running back out there who is arguably the best in the game, Josh Jacobs out in Las Vegas, and who better to talk about him and the running back market than none other than the Athletics' Tashaun Reed, who covers the Raiders for, again, the Athletics. So, Tashawn, how you doing?
3: Pretty good, man. Yourself?
1: I'm doing good. I don't know if I'm doing – as good as, or maybe not as bad as Josh Jacobs because he's upset with the contract situation so you've been on the ground, you've been covering this since, I believe he had that statement where he was like, you know, hero turned villain if I don't get a contract done, so what has it been like to see him sort of turn into that villain, given that in your recent piece that I, which I read, it was the right move for the Raiders to tag him Yeah, it
3: just makes the most business sense particularly for where they are as a team. You know, I, I would say if the Raiders were were a playoff team last year and, you know, they, they felt like, you know, with with one or two moves this off season they could push it ahead and contend. Um, you know, they want to keep their, their star running back, as you said, arguably the best running back in the league, happy, you know, it it would make sense to go ahead and put together an extension. But, you know, right now they're they're in the midst of a rebuild. You know, they've been avoiding that word, but it is what it is. You know, they went six and eleven last season. You know, they swapped out their quarterback, Derek Carr, for Jimmy Garoppolo. They didn't really do too much in free agency outside of that. Um, made some, some pretty future-based moves in the draft. Um, and, and so it seemed like they're, they're taking their time and, and building for the future more so than worrying about the present. And, you know, giving a, a running back a big money deal, like some would argue it doesn't ever make sense, but especially when, you know, like they're probably not going to be that good this year. It's just kind of hard to justify making that move, but... Obviously, Josh Jacobs is still a, an elite player at his position. He's somebody that you don't want to just let him walk for nothing, right? And so that's why you go ahead and franchise tag him. You know, 10000000 million isn't an insignificant number, um, but, you know, they deemed it worth it to, to keep him on the roster, you know, assuming that he eventually signs that tag and, and suits up for them this season.
2: Tashawn, James and I are of the mindset that we're not going to overpay for a running back if we were running an NFL franchise, and there's no clean way to say this other than to say I always expect the Raiders to make the wrong decision. Like That's just how I've grown up. Uh, Cars on the table, I, I have been root for the Chiefs, so that's a bitter rivalry to begin with, and it's funny to point at them and laugh every now and again, but to your point, I thought this was a smart business decision on their part to not give him a long-term high-level like market reset contract and just play it out with the tag i know you mentioned the rebuild but how much of this is a new philosophy within the way the front office wants to attack things and how much of it is well with where their cap space is at and other position players they're paying it really wouldn't have made any sense to break the bank for josh jacobs
3: um, their cap situation is fine. They, they don't have much cap room right now, but their their future books are pretty clean. Like as it is, I think they're projected to have around forty-four million dollars in cash space next offseason, and they could create a bunch more space by making some moves. Uh, you know, as Chandler Jones just evolves back to the season, moving on from him. Hunter Renfro doesn't have any guaranteed money after the season, so it wasn't really about you know them being restricted in terms of future cash space. It's just they just don't, don't believe in allocating but so much to their position, which makes sense. I mean, you know, both general manager Dave Ziegler and, and head coach Josh McDaniels came from the Patriots, and, you know, as we know, the Patriots are known for you know, running less. back by committee, never really paying anybody, let alone running back, right? So, um, it, it lines up with, with how they came up, you know, and so it's really no surprise to see them go in this direction. Uh, you know, they did make an offer to, to Jacobs, but, you know, the there was a gap when it came to the guarantees, yeah. which you know, like that's ultimately what matters. Like I got, you know, they could say they're going to pay him whatever salary, you know, into the next few years. But if only this year and a little bit of next year are guaranteed, then how much security does that really provide for Josh Jacobs? And, you know, like the, the kind of the, the theoretical bar for running backs with these extensions is about $22 million. Cause that would be, you know, how much money they would get guaranteed if they were tagged two years in a row. And then to my understanding, the Raiders didn't meet that number. And so, For Jacobs, you know, it's like, I mean, why would I sign this? Like, if if I'm still, you know, he's confident that he's going to be the player he was last year, this upcoming year, then he's probably going to get tagged again next year. He's like, I'm going to get that money anyway. You know what I mean? And so, um, but from the team side, you know, that's just their philosophy. Um, It's what makes sense with where they stand. Again, like maybe they would bend a little bit um, if they were closer in terms of being able to compete. But but where where they are as a franchise, it's just, it's hard to, to justify it. Um, you know, even though Jacobs is a great player and a locker room leader and, and was given lots of franchise.
1: So, in the lead of your piece on The Athletic about Josh Jacobs, the most recent one, you were talking about how, you know, this is a guy who showed up to play a game shortly after his own son found his granddad, you know, Josh Jacobs' father, in pain and, you know, had an open heart surgery right before this game. Who, on the surface, or too many people would have thought, is like, meaningless last game of the season and not going to the playoffs be with your family he showed up for that so all that to say Sean how do you think him possibly not being around for training camp I would assume the very training camp preseason and potentially trying to hold out could affect just the team as far as their bond their morale and things like that because he is so respected in that locker room
3: yeah I definitely think you know especially the guys that have been his teammates for a few years, like Max Crosby, who, you know, reportedly he was sitting in the car with, um, leading up to the deadline, you know, when he he was, you know, potentially still going to get a deal done. Um, Obviously, they've been not happy to see, you know, a guy that they care about and have given so much to the team not get rewarded. And, you know, Josh Jacobs, you know, he, he did deserve an extension. It's just it didn't make sense from a business standpoint. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he earned every penny that he was asking for um and, and so I, I definitely think it's going to be something that upsets a few different guys but you know i, I think we sometimes as media we kind of you know blow these things up a little bit more you know these guys aren't going to like not show up because oh, they're mad at josh Jacobs. right i'm thing, trying to get, you know? I'm trying to get my like, money too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, even like devontae adams like a big narrative this offseason was you know with them losing or, or getting rid of Derek Carr and replacing him with a guy like devontae came here to play with Derek Carr is like oh is he going to ask out for trade is he not going to show up he's like yeah, you know, like, I still got a job to do, you know what I mean, even if he's not 100% healthy. Now, that is something that cumulatively, like, you know, last season they had a rough year. Um, you know, in this off season they had an NFLPA survey come out, you know, with players, you know, saying that the coaching staff was essentially pushing them too hard um, with their practice habits and things of that nature and they were, they were too abrasive. Then you have things like this where, you know, Darren Waller gets traded this off season. Derek Carr gets cut, Josh Jacobs doesn't get his extension, Hunter Renfro's up in the air. You know, you start – these things starting to stack up against each other. And and if the wins don't start to come, you know, kind of to justify these decisions that are being made, then that's when you can start getting a situation where the roster is like, all right, like, what are we doing here? You know? But I don't think they're quite to that point yet. I mean, they're only one year in, Um, you know, it's just pretty early in the tenure of both Ziggler and McDaniels. But, you know, these are the sort of things that will be remembered if things ultimately don't work out from a wins and losses standpoint, which I said earlier, like, I, I cover the team, and I don't. I don't really expect them to be too good this season. I don't think many people do either. You know, if they have another rough season this year, you know, toward the end of the season, that that's something that, like I said, this could contribute to. You know, the team kind of getting fed up a little bit.
2: Deshaun Reed with us covers the Las Vegas Raiders for the Athletic. From Josh Jacobs' standpoint and the running backs as a whole, Indianapolis is dealing with this, or at least is on the precipice of dealing with it, with Jonathan Taylor, who is going to obviously have a contract year this year and then depending on if they get an extension done sometime this year or if the tag game that we just saw jacobs and barkley try to fight and lose takes place the whole nother story but for running backs is there is there any light is there any way to fight this or is it pretty much just well next time the cba comes up maybe try to negotiate against tags even though I don't think owners are going to give that up, but I know they're not going to give it up, but (laughs) but what is the pathway for running backs like Jacobs? Because the only one we can think of, and Le'Veon Bell tried this and didn't work, is Jonathan Taylor tries to be a foot soldier here, fight this, and inevitably he's going to be in the same boat Jacobs and Barkley are, which is, okay, if you don't show up, we're not paying you.
3: Yeah, I mean, the only practical route is, you know, something happening in 2030 when the next CBA is up, when it comes to whether that's the franchise tag or, or the way that, you know, rookie contracts are handled. Uh, you know, because I think this was less of an issue back in the day when, you, you know, basically you had to negotiate a contract with a rookie as if he was like a premier player at his position right away. Yeah. You know, like the Sam Bradford era where you get $70 million. But now where it's all scaled and slotted, um, it, it, it makes like Josh Jacobs has only made. About twelve million dollars in his career so far, and he's a first round pick, you know. And so, um, it really just puts these guys in a tough bind. Like, you know, the extreme example. Like, I, I guess they they would all have to like <laughs> have like a running back strike. I guess like <laughs> it's every 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 good running back in the league just collectively decides not to play at the same time. Like, maybe at, maybe then teams would care, but I don't know, man. Like, it, it just doesn't seem like there's there's a path for this to get better for them before that next CBA is, uh, there's nothing realistic anyway. Like, it, it pretty much it is. You know, I take Juan Barkley tweeted it out. You know, it is what it is.
2: Brandon Bolton, it's your turn. Get out there. Josh Jacobs is striking. Let's go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to really look at a, a path that rewards them in the way they think they deserve to be rewarded. But I want to pivot away from – Running backs for a moment and focus on quarterbacks. Now, the Raiders had an opportunity in slash last draft to pursue a younger quarterback to trade up if they wanted to, to get a guy. They did not. They instead decided to sign Jimmy Garoppolo, who I don't think you or others knew at the time of his signing was not like fully cleared and had the whole foot issue. So what have the conversations been like around him? And is he expected to be healthy at any point throughout training camp to be available for the team that – invested in him and then had to kind of go back and put some contingencies in there just in case he isn't ready?
3: Yeah, so the Raiders have been you know, pretty adamant, um, you know, both publicly and, and, you know, kind of through other means that, you know, they're not worried about Garoppolo being ready for the start of the season, you know, that they, you know, I mean, obviously, they reworked the deal. They were aware that he was going to need surgery um, when he signed in March, um, and, and, you know, they, they felt like it was best they took their time, you know, not having him practice during OTAs you know, whether he's going to be out there on the field for training camp on Tuesday next week or Wednesday, I should say, Like you know, we'll see, I guess. But, you know, ultimately they believe he'll be ready to go by the start of the season. Obviously, you know, with quarterbacks in particular, you know, in the first year with the team, like it's not ideal for him to miss practice time, you know, as he, you know, kind of acclimates himself, you know, with his new teammates, you know, and within the system. But, you know, given Garoppolo played in McDaniel's offense for, a few years at the start of his career in New England, um, he has a greater familiarity than, you know, if he was a rookie, you know, at, you know as you mentioned with the option that they had earlier. So um, they, they aren't too concerned about him being able to jump in and, you know, whether it's two weeks or three weeks or whatever before the season and, and being ready to go, um, you know, in, in terms of whether he can stay healthy, that's that's really more so the question with me, with, with Jimmy Garoppolo. Cause this, you know, this foot surgery sounds like it was relatively minor. Like, obviously, the injury wasn't minor. It kept him out through the rest of the last season. But, uh, you know, the, the surgery wasn't any major reconstructive surgery or anything of that nature. Um, but, you know, he's just a guy that he, he just hasn't been able to stay healthy throughout his pretty much his entire career. You know, like, like this is just who he's been. I mean, I think he's had three seasons in the injuries. I think he's only played one full season since he became a, a full-time starter. You know, and, and the Raiders, you know, while their offensive line thrives and run blocking, like, they they really struggled to pass protect last season and Jimmy Garoppolo isn't the most mobile quarterback in the world, and he's injury-prone behind the offensive line that isn't too good at protecting against pass you know, pass protecting. And so it it sounds like a dangerous recipe when you just kind of lay it out, you know, like that. And so it's something that, you know, Raiders fans, you know, they're going to be on pins and needles a little bit until he's cleared and ready to go. But even after that, you know, there's going to be an air of concern about can this guy stay upright? You know, and it's hard to blame people for thinking that way.
1: Yeah, I mean... It's so funny we talk about durability and running backs and what they deserve, and it's like, well, if you're a quarterback that's pretty good but always hurt, you can get more money than a running back. There's a back. halo so over your head, James. That's Come just on. <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. So, yeah. Tashaun, I don't know if you know this, but my dad is a diehard Raiders fan. He's been that way his entire life. He's from Chicago, and I, it's a long story, but they were good when he was young. He <laughs> stuck with them, and God bless him because they've been, you know, very bad, at least when I've been <laughs> alive. So what defines a successful season in Las Vegas for this team?
3: Uh, I mean, I I, I don't want to like make any outside projections for them. I think what's successful for fans, honestly, and it sounds kind of rough to say, like, is if they're pretty bad because this upcoming quarterback class is, is thought to be pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And the only way you're going to get one of those guys is if you stink. It's kind of how it works. <laughs> and so like, yeah, I I just don't envision this being a team that's going to like make it to the playoffs or compete if they somehow snuck into the playoffs. And so for me, like, instead of just being 6-11 again and having, you know, the 7th or 8th overall pick, let the bottom fall out, man. Like, be bad, go get a quarterback, and, and, you know, then you can have some hope and something to look forward to in the future. Like, even if you aren't that good in 2024, like, you have this young, ascending, you know, in theory, quarterback with a lot of potential that you can, you know, groom, you know, with Devontae Adams and these other weapons on the team, but – You know, I I think that's – it's not success, isn't isn't the word, I don't think, for a season like that, but it it might end up being what would set the Raiders up the best, you know, moving forward as a franchise.
1: Gotcha. Well, Tashaun, look, I really appreciate your time. I will see you week 17 here in Indianapolis. You know, make sure you bring your coat because it will be cold, unlike Vegas, which I always love to go to. Now, if they want to play all games on the road against the Raiders, I'm all for that. (laughs) But, you know, the way the league is set up, you kind of have to come here sometimes too. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean I'm from St. Louis, man. The coding, coding that means
1: all right, I cool, man.
3: For me, but I see you out there, bro.
1: All right, you have a good one.
3: All right, man. you too. Peace.
1: All right, that was Tashawn Reed covers the Raiders for the Athletic.